where we're looking this morning at a very familiar area, I'm sure to many of you, the Annunciation by the Angels to the Shepherds, as it's recorded in Luke chapter 2. And as we are coming to God's Word, we will not be surprised to find that when we dig around in the narrative, there are many hidden depths uh, that what seems and is, of course, a straightforward account has very profound depths to it, a bit like an iceberg where most of it uh, is unseen, but it's there supporting what's in the structure. And what we have here is an announcement from heaven to earth, an announcement from the angels to the shepherds concerning the Messiah. And I want to just explore with you some aspects of this particular revelation of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Messiah, uh, and what it meant in this context here. The first thing, and clearly what's right on the surface, is that we see in this announcement, in this revelation, we see that Jesus, the Christ, is the greater son of David. He's David's greater son. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And the fact that it is the city of David is not, not just some incidental, although Luke is very careful to mark the historical markers and the geographical markers in his narrative, uh, right through and right into the Acts as well. Yet we're not just to see this as some kind of geographical uh, sign it is obviously highly important as the first part of the chapter, chapter 2, makes clear because it was to the city of David that Joseph and Mary returned from Galilee, from Nazareth, uh, Mary being great with child. And they went there because of the decree of the Caesar that everyone should be enrolled and taxed in their home areas. And so here they are. Why did he go to Bethlehem? Why did he go to this place, the city of David? Well, it was because he was in the line of David. He was of the house and lineage of David. And so we are here reminded, and it's more explicit, of course, in other parts of the infancy narratives, as they're called, particularly in Matthew chapter 2. It's more explicit that the one who is being uh, highlighted here, the one on whom we are being focused is David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that takes us right back to the history of Bethlehem in our thoughts, and I'm just going to refer very briefly to that. Remember that uh, David was from Jesse's family, which is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 16. When the Lord says to Samuel that he is to anoint one of the children, one of the sons of Jesse, to be king in Saul's place. And so Samuel goes and he sees all these sons presented before him. And then eventually uh, out comes David. He's ruddy, of a beautiful countenance, goodly to look to. And the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel does that. He anoints David as king. And this is Jesse's family, and it's in Bethlehem. And so it's David's city. 
And King David, a man of God, he wanted to build the temple, a, a temple. He wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be in a permanent dwelling, not just in a tabernacle. And so uh, he had this plan to build the temple. But God said to him, you're not to do it. There's too much blood on your hands. Uh, you've been in too many wars. It's a, a, this is a, a project of peace to build a temple for me. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes clear that although <clears throat> David cannot build him a house, he, the Lord, will build David a house. 2 Samuel and chapter 7. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And as we read on in that, we become aware that the one who's been spoken of is not just the ordinary line of David, the ordinary dynasty of David, that there's something far more profound about it. It is a prophecy of the Messiah, of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Psalm 72 encapsulates that. Give, thy, give the king thy judgments, O Lord, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. It encapsulates that. And as we read Psalm 72, we realize this is far beyond just the nation of Israel, the very domain in which the kingdom is going to be established is, is, is vast. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. It encompasses the wilderness. It, it brings in kings from afar. And the, the benevolence uh, and the love of this reign is something far, that far outstrips any earthly ruler. And this is a prophecy of Christ. And so, as we're brought here to the city of David, we are reminded who this baby is. He is the king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. In Luke chapter 1, uh, the angel tells Mary that Jesus shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. Now these are terms that could only apply to almighty God himself. And when Elizabeth, the mother, of Mary, uh, the mother of John, the expectant mother of John, greets Mary, later on in Luke chapter 1, she says, Whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She recognizes that that baby in the womb of Mary is her Lord, is her God. We cannot understand these things. We still cannot understand these things. 2,000 years later, even with the wonderful narrative of God's word, and where we cannot understand, we must worship. We must bow the knee to Jesus. And that is a sure sign of a Christian faith, is it not? Uh, where we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, where we honor him as God. So we see him as David's greatest son. Secondly, it's no coincidence that here the Annunciation is made to shepherds because Jesus is also the great shepherd of the sheep. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields. Now, if that were the only reference to shepherds in all of this, you might think I'm straining a point. 
But in fact, the scriptures are absolutely chock full of references to God as the shepherd of his people, particularly as you combine the idea of a shepherd with an earthly ruler, because uh, kings in those days liked to consider themselves, even the cruel kings, consider themselves protectors and benevolent uh, dictators. Most of them were not very benevolent. But we see in the Bible that the Messiah is predicted as the shepherd of his people. We th- for example, we haven't time to, to, to really go into this, but let me just refer you to Ezekiel chapter 34. And Ezekiel 34, uh, God is bemoaning, he is bewailing the uh, shepherds of Israel, the shepherds of his people, the under-shepherds, saying that they are covetous, they are vicious, they are oppressive, they leave the sheep to be meat for all the predators. They uh, don't gather the sheep. They wander, the sheep wander around on all the mountains and every high hill. And they're just a prey to their enemies. And so what does God do as he, as he in this, uh, this kind of song of lament, what does he do? He says, well, I'm going to come. Uh, it's got so bad that I'm going to come. I'm going to be the shepherd of my people. Verse 11, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And we can link that in, of course, with Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, And we can link it in with the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, that he is the good shepherd who came uh, for his people. And my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life. He is surely the great shepherd of the sheep and every believer belongs to his flock. We are the flock of God if we are Believers. Now, there are other shepherds around, of course, in this world, other people who claim that they will look after us, look after our bodies, look after our homes, look after everything about us right through to our death day. But they're false shepherds because only, there's only one true shepherd, that is the Lord Jesus. And here, as he is amongst the sheep uh, or with the shepherds in this narrative, we are reminded of that. Is he your shepherd? Can you say the Lord is my shepherd and therefore I shall not lack? But thirdly, we see in this passage a strong indication that he is not only the shepherd of the sheep, but he's actually the the sacrificial lamb. It's no coincidence that he's placed in a manger. A manger, we have the French word manger, to eat, A manger was an animal feeding trough. And who is it who's going to be feeding out of these troughs? Well, it's going to be animals for sacrifice, and particularly the sheep. Because Bethlehem was known as an area where sheep were raised in order to keep the sacrificial system going smoothly in Jerusalem. We go into the Pentateuch, we see the huge numbers of animals that needed to be sacrificed 
as part of temple worship. God had ordained this until the Lamb of God, the Messiah himself, had come. And here we have such a close identification, do we not, of Christ with that. Later on in the New Testament and in the life of Christ, that that, uh, identification becomes even more explicit. Remember how John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember how John, in his gospel, as he speaks of the death of Christ on the cross and how uh, they wanted to see whether he had died after the hours of suffering. And one of them pierced him through with a spear, but he didn't break a bone. And then he quotes the Old Testament as it says, as it is written, a bone of him shall not be broken. But what is that speaking of in the Old Testament? It's speaking of the Passover lamb. The very height of sacrifice, the height of the Old Testament sacrificial system, once a year, the Passover, the lamb for each household. Speaking of the provision of a sacrifice for our sins. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, says Paul to the Corinthian church. He's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of the death of Jesus upon the cross for our sins. And here and there, in the early life of Christ, even in his infancy, we have, uh, we have adumbrations. We have uh, foreshadowings of the fact that he's going to be a sacrifice, even in his circumcision. Because circumcision draws blood. Even, even there we see him uh, 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 as the Lamb of God. And that reminds us, and we're reminded here, that there's only one who can be the mediator with God. It's Jesus Christ. There are many people who offer to be mediators with God in this sinful world. Man is at his most wicked when it comes to godless religion, That's where he is at his worst, not at his best, he's at his worst. Where people claim that they can be priests to take us to God. People claim that they're in touch with divinity. People claim all kinds of things and they're false prophets and they're false shepherds. Because there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who came into this world to save sinners. And is he your mediator Is he your sacrifice? This babe lying in a manger, is he the one who's taken your sins? Have you trusted in him? So we see him here as the great son of David, David's greatest son, the great shepherd of the sheep, the sacrificial lamb. And finally, we are reminded in the context that he is the savior of sinners because he came to the shepherds. Now the shepherds, uh, as you read some of the writings of the time, uh, the shepherds didn't have a good reputation. I don't know whether that was deserved or not. I suspect some of it was deserved. They had a reputation for not knowing the difference between mine and thine when it came to property. They had a reputation for being rather uh, unreliable people. They were certainly down the pile, as they say. And maybe that's why the angel said to them when 
he appeared to them, or they appeared to them. The angel says first words, fear not. Not just because you're in the presence of the numinous, the presence of the heavenly and the awesome, but fear not because you are sinners and you know it. And you're in the presence of a holy God. And that's enough to cause anyone to be terrified who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their saviour. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were sore afraid, terrified. Now people can be frightened of paranormal things, so-called, and such things, but the, the sheer terror suggests that there was another element to it because if we're not saved, if we do not know Jesus Christ is our saviour, our consciences tell us that we are not fit for God. Our consciences tell us we're not fit to live, we're not fit to die. And doesn't that make the announcement of the angel absolutely remarkable? Fear not. For behold, I bring you, people like you, good tidings of great joy. And if it's true of them, it's surely true of everybody. That here is a message for every sinner, for every person who does not know Christ, for everyone who is apart from God. The song of the angels, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill towards men. What is it that glorifies God most of all? It's the salvation of sinners. What is it that glorifies God more than anything else? It's the salvation of the worst sinners. The parable of the prodigal son tells us that. That this is what caused heaven to erupt with joy when that prodigal son, that son who wasted his substance in riotous living, that son who'd shown such ingratitude and had lived without uh, loving or caring for his father, when that son came home in repentance, that was something that was filling the father's heart with joy and causing heaven to erupt with joy. That glorifies God more than anything else. And so we see the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God, not just because of the revelation of the Son of God. Of course, that was part of it. He's always worthy of worship. But the context, the context is this, that to you is given a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the Savior of sinners. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. That's not my statement. That's the statement of the word of God. And that's why it is remarkable. There's another sign of God's grace at work here in verse 15 in our narrative. Here's another sign of God's grace. You could easily lose sight of it. When the angels had gone away, they didn't say, well, that was a remarkable thing. I was terrified, but they were quite encouraging. And I... I'll never forget it. No, they didn't talk like that. They said, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They expressed themselves in faith. They expressed themselves in action, in decision, in trust in what God had said to them and a determination to go and see for themselves. And the shepherds went there, saw Mary and the child. The child, remarkably, 
in a manger. Perhaps not so remarkable to have swaddling clothes, but remarkable to be laid in a manger. And they realize that this is exactly the person who will be the savior. And so they trusted him. Obviously they did because they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They made that journey to Bethlehem. It was on their spiritual itinerary, their physical itinerary in their case. Have you made that journey spiritually? Is it in your itinerary this Christmas to go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord makes known to us every time we read this passage? May it be indeed so that you might glorify and praise God for all that he has declared to us in giving his son, Jesus Christ, to be our saviour.